You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Praise be Jesus Christ. As we work our way through this introductory course in moral theology, we've come today to the topic of conscience. It's a sign of our times, I'm afraid, that we don't hear much about conscience anymore, and yet it really stands at the center of the Catholic Church's teaching on the moral life. But there are many who don't understand what the teaching really is. There are many people today who will appeal to their conscience only when they are trying to justify their having performed some kind of immoral act. And they will say, well, I'm just acting in accord with my conscience. The church may teach such and such, but my conscience tells me this, and I must be faithful to my conscience. Well, unfortunately, these people are taking a truth of the church, but understanding it incorrectly and certainly applying it incorrectly. What is conscience? It's interesting to note that St. Thomas himself, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, does not write a great deal about conscience. He does write a lot about prudence, however, and prudence is the chief of all the virtues. Most people hear of prudence and they think of someone who is timid. The prudent man is usually looked upon as the cautious man, the man who's more characterized by timidity than firm action. And yet, classically understood, prudence is the highest of all of the virtues because it not only is a moral virtue, which the moral virtues are all perfections of our appetites and of our passions, prudence is also an intellectual virtue which means it capacitates us, enables us to see reality for what it is so that we can make the right kinds of judgment about a course of action that is being proposed to us. Now, St. Thomas tells us that the virtue of prudence has three primary activities. First of all is reflection. Next is judgment, and finally is the issuing of command. St. Thomas tells us that there is a receptive part of prudence that perceives reality for what it is, reflects on it before it begins to make a judgment about the kind of action that ought to be performed. Pope Leo XIII, in his great encyclical, which ushered in now over a hundred years, encyclicals on social teaching. Leo XIII issued an encyclical in 1891 entitled Rerum Novarum, which dealt with social justice, the first great modern encyclical on social justice. But in that document, Leo XIII says, nothing is so useful as looking at the world as it really is. Now, that seems so self-evident, you'd wonder why a pope would even say it. 
But one of the great agonies of the 20th century is that one political movement, one ideological movement after another tried to fashion a human society not in accord with the way things are, but in accord with the way in which these ideologues thought things should be. So that you have the communists denying private property, denying religion, denying family, and brutalizing human beings in the process because they didn't look to the world as it really is. Prudence is that perfected ability to look at the world as it really is. So if we're going to make the right kinds of judgments about what we ought to do, we must first be able to see reality for what it is, to reflect on it, as they say, this perceptive part where it perceives the world. Then when we reflect on the courses of action that we might take to attain our end, we make a judgment about the appropriateness of one action over another. And when we have made our judgment that, for example, this particular act is wrong because it won't help me achieve my goal, or this particular action is appropriate, maybe even obligatory, because in my circumstances I should do it to achieve my goal, then prudence goes on to issue the preceptum, the command. Okay. Don't do this act, which will keep you from achieving your goal. Do this act, which you must do if you will fulfill your obligations as a father, as a husband, as a teacher, whatever. So we really see in the writings of St. Thomas, prudence in many respects playing the role which later came to be associated with conscience. But we have to see that the most characteristic act of prudence isn't judgment, but rather preceptum, that is the issuing of the command. I now know what I should do or should not do, and then I must act upon that. Because we never grow in virtue unless we act. Virtues are good habits, and good habits come about only through acting. I might have the greatest insights in the world about a current situation. I might be able to come to the absolutely right judgment about what ought to be done. But if I don't do it, I don't become virtuous. I don't grow in virtue. This is why St. Thomas said that prudence was the mother of all of the virtues. Because unless I have that clarity of vision, I don't know what I must do in order to be just. I don't know how to be just unless I have that clarity of vision. I don't know how to be courageous. I don't know how to be temperate and chaste. Now, we can see conscience as being that last best judgment that we make with regard to a proposed course of action. It represents a reflection upon and studied conclusion about the direction in which we ought to go and the action that we ought to perform. Conscience is sometimes called a still, small voice. But it's not as though something or someone outside us is whispering to us, but rather it's this voice within, which is our voice, which is drawing the conclusion and making the judgment about the course of action that we ought to make. Now, right here, right now, in these circumstances, it's not this broad awareness of the fact that we ought to do good and avoid evil, which the theologians have called syndaresis, but rather the judgment that in this circumstance and right now, this is the action I should perform 
and this indeed is the action which I will perform, and then you issue the command. Now, one of the difficulties with conscience today is that people no longer see it as this, if you will, almost bright-eyed, clear-visioned, open, free kind of movement in the world in pursuit of the good, as we see in this explanation I've just given of the classical teaching of prudence, which really liberates us to be free to pursue the good. Conscience, at one time in the church's history, came to be associated very much with the application of the law. There was a time when some moral theologians thought that the real essence of the moral life is determining whether or not the law applies and is binding on us in this case, in this situation, and that this was the act of conscience. Conscience was going to tell us whether we were free to act or whether we were not free to act. So there was a time in which legalism, I've talked about before, really worked its way into the thinking of many people within the church so that the moral life was seen as a conformity to the will of the lawgiver again. And the task of conscience was to determine what the will of the lawgiver was, and then to see whether or not it applied to me in this case. Going my way with Bing Crosby, uh, which a lot of people have probably seen it, but when uh, the young priest appears at the parish, the older priest welcomes him and suggests that they have a drink together to inaugurate Father Bing Crosby. I forget his name right now, but his stay at this new parish. And in those days, all Catholics were bound by a fast before Holy Communion from midnight the night before. And the older priest looks at his watch to see if there's time for them to have that shot of whiskey together. And the one looks at his watch and says, "Uh uh-oh, it's too late. It's five minutes after midnight. We can't have our drink. And the other one looks at his watch and says, oh, no, no, my watch says it's five minutes to midnight. We just have the time to have this drink together. Well, they, they were ready to be bound by the law. It's a cute little story, and it shows the way in which Catholics adapted in a very human way to this life of laws and rules, which are good. They were good because they showed respect for the Blessed Sacrament and for receiving our Lord in the Eucharist. But so often the Catholics thought of themselves as being either bound by the law or free from the law, and sometimes it all depended on how thinly you could slice it as to whether or not you could get away with having that shot of whiskey in the evening before you went to bed, just depending on which clock you happened to be looking to. And it was sometimes thought that it was the function of conscience to be making the judgment about whether or not one were truly free to perform this kind of action. Well, this led in the 18th century to various schools of thought about the degree to which Christians could be free to act when there was doubt about whether or not they were bound by the law. And there were various schools of thought that developed around opinions as to how certain one had to be whether one was bound by the law or not. So let's say you were a Frenchman who was bound by the Friday fast. You couldn't have meat on any Friday of the year. But you found yourself in Spain. And the Spaniards were not bound by the Friday fast because of a great victory that they had won at one point on behalf of all of Western Europe against the Muslims. And so they weren't bound by the Friday fast. Well, here's this Frenchman in Spain, he's a good Catholic, and Friday rolls around, and can he have venison or not? 
Or does he have to eat fish? Is he bound by the law that the Frenchmen are bound by? Or, but now he's in Spain. Is he free to have whatever he wants? Well, that's just a silly example of, of the sorts of questions that arose. And there were various schools of thought that developed what were called reflex principles. Now, these reflex principles don't refer to reflex in the sense of somebody pokes you in the eye with a stick and you blink. There's a reflex of so the doctor hits your knee with a little hammer and the, the leg goes off. That's not the kind of reflex we're talking about here. This reflex comes from reflection. In other words, these were principles guiding people who were reflecting on whether or not they were free from the law or whether they were bound by the law. And the various schools of thought had different names for their principle. So you had the rigorists, okay, there were rigorists, who said that if there was any chance that you were bound by the law, then you had to act as though you were bound by the law and you weren't free to do otherwise. So if you're this poor uh, Frenchman in Mallorca, again, if there was any chance you might be bound by the variety faster than you had to hold to it, you weren't free to deviate from the law. Well, then there was another school of thought that was a little looser. They were known as the uh, tutiorists, from the Latin word tutus, which means safe. And tutior is the comparative, that means safer. So these were the ones who advocated taking the safer course. So you always had to act as though you were bound by the law. It wasn't simply that if there was any chance you were bound by the law, but it had to be very likely that you were not bound by the law before you could be free to act. And then you had some other schools of thought. There were those who were called the laxists. They were very lax about things, and they said if there's any chance that you're not bound by the law, then you're, you're free to go ahead and, and do it. Okay, don't worry about it. Well, then there were those who said, well, it has to be more probable that you're free than you're bound by the law to be able to act. And they were known as the probabiliarists, because it meant you were, it was more probable that you were free. And then there were those that said, well, it has to at least be equally probable that you're free of the law and that you're bound by the law in order to act. And they were known as the equi, or equal, probabilists. And then, if you can believe it, there was another school of thought known as the probabilists. And they said, if it's simply probable that you're free of the law, then you can go ahead and act. Well, you can imagine how restrictive the Christian life must have seemed under that particular kind of approach. And it was all seen in terms of the law and freedom from the law. Well, actually, it was a great debate, and it was resolved finally by the great moral theologian, St. Alphonsus Liguori. And if you're going to approach the moral life from the vantage point of these reflex principles, then the church finally settled upon probabilism. That is, if it's probable that you're free from the law, then you're not bound by it, okay. really arguing in favor of freedom. But we find that with renewal of moral theology that has been taking place in the church really into the last century, that there has been a moving away from this emphasis upon people being simply bound by the law to a greater and greater emphasis upon virtue, upon freedom, upon clarity of vision as to what the truth is, what goodness is, of course, always acting in accord with the known law. It's interesting in our own day that the dissenting theologians who disagree with church teaching very often sound like and talk like these legalists of the 18th century, 
And they will say such things as, well, most of the prominent moral theologians today disagree with the church's teaching on contraception, so therefore it's more probable that we're not bound by it because there are so many opinions of these theologians that think otherwise. But you know, the old tradition of the church in the 18th century never allowed the application of these reflex principles unless there was doubt concerning the law. With the sorts of actions that they want to legitimize today, that these dissenting theologians want to legitimize, there's no doubt about the morality of those actions. There's no doubt that contraception is immoral and what the church teaches with regard to it, and the same with adultery or telling lies. So there's no way in which you can sort of balance opinion with regard to actions like that. But the church is really reaching back to an ancient tradition, a scriptural tradition, the tradition of the early church, the tradition of the great flowering of Catholicism in the high Middle Ages, with the emphasis upon the life of virtue in pursuit of the good, being guided by reason, enlightened by grace, and with what revelation is able to teach us. I should probably say this on every one of our shows, if you want to gain a good understanding of the beauty of the Catholic Church's moral doctrine and how it manifest the dignity of the human person, you could do no better than to turn to the catechism of the Catholic Church, this great gift of the Church to its people in our day. And here we see conscience being presented not as this act of the person who is concerned about whether or not he is free or bound by the law, but rather by this capacity of the human person to be open to the truth and to make judgments of the intellect, of the reason about what is right and what is wrong. But not a reason that is loose and autonomous and on its own, but rather a reason that is ordered to and conforms itself to God's objective created order. This is why the modern understandings of conscience don't really work. They see conscience as almost able to make up reality. But conscience refers to our ability to see the world as it is and to act in accord with the truth. We read in the Catechism, conscience is a judgment of reason whereby the human person recognizes the moral quality, that is the good quality, the the self-fulfilling quality of a concrete act that he is going to perform, is in the process of performing, or has already completed. And then the Catechism quotes the great John Henry Cardinal Newman, that great English convert uh, to the faith, and says, conscience is a messenger of him who, both in nature and in grace, speaks to us behind a veil and teaches and rules us by his representatives. Conscience is a messenger of him who, both in nature and grace, speaks to us, teaches and rules us by his representatives. Conscience is a messenger of God. Conscience both in nature and in grace. Uh, As I was reading earlier from Paul's letter to the Romans, that those who sin are without excuse because they know what is right in their hearts because God has written it in their hearts, in nature, and in grace. That is, even those of us 
who have been graced in baptism and have the knowledge of revelation also engage our consciences as a messenger of God himself to help us live the truth. John Henry Cardinal Newman has this beautiful term for conscience which almost anticipated the kinds of conflicts that would arise in our own day in the church when people were laying claim to the necessity of following their own conscience over against the teachings of the church. As though the Vicar of Christ, the Pope, teaches one thing, but my conscience tells me something else, so I have to act in another way. Well, John Henry Cardinal Newman refers to conscience as the aboriginal vicar of Christ. Newman refers to conscience as the vicar of Christ. Conscience is the ability to see God's truth. The vicar of Christ, the Pope, is here for no other reason than to speak God's truth. And even those people who do not know Jesus Christ have within them, if you will, the vicar of Christ in their consciences, which enable them to see the truth and to live in accord with the truth. And what did Jesus call himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There can't be any division, any split between the teachings of the Vicar of Christ, the Holy Father who represents Christ to us, speaks the mind of Christ to us, and the aboriginal Vicar of Christ within us, conscience itself. Because there is only one truth. There is only one reality which God himself has created and through which we come to him and by which we know how we are to act. So the dignity of the human person, the Catechism tells us, implies and requires uprightness of moral conscience. Uprightness of moral conscience. Conscience is upright when it is true, when it is able to see reality for what it is and to make this judgment, which is an accurate one, so the Catechism calls it the prudent judgment of conscience. As I was saying earlier, St. Thomas speaks so much about, uh, about prudence and not so much about conscience, but that doesn't mean that these are opposed to one another because this last best judgment that we make about whether or not a given action is good or not is the prudent judgment of conscience that directs us to act for the good or which restrains us from acting to keep us from evil. St. Thomas tells us that truth is the conformity of mind to reality. And if we are going to forge a true conscience, it must be conformed to reality. And as such, guarantees our freedom. We can't truly be free to act unless we know what reality is. We can't get on the road to drive to New York when the road is really going in the direction of Birmingham. We're not going to get to New York. We may have many good things to do in New York and we're going to wind up in Birmingham instead. A great place to be, but maybe not for the purposes that you set out on your trip. So in order even to be free, we have to know the truth of things. Faced with a moral choice, the Catechism says, conscience can make either a right judgment in accordance with reason and the divine law, or on the contrary, an erroneous judgment that departs from them. 
but it doesn't know it's making an erroneous judgment. You see, conscience wants to make the right judgment. It wants to seek the good. It wants to do the right thing. That's why, again, we call it our last best judgment about what we ought to do. Now, it's interesting that even if conscience makes a wrong judgment, we are still bound to follow it because it's our last best judgment about what is right or what is wrong. And if we went against our conscience, it would be as though we were saying that even though I know this is the thing I must do to be good, even though I know this is what I must do in order to be pleasing to God, I'm not going to do it. Or I am going to do something that I know will be displeasing to him. What well, might be that according to the objective facts, we're in error, but if we don't know that, we're still bound to act in accord with our conscience because we think we're right. As far as we know, we're right. So we are always bound by our conscience. As St. Thomas says, every conscience, whether it is right or wrong, whether it concerns things evil in themselves or things morally indifferent, obliges us to act in such a way that he who acts against his conscience sins. He who acts against his conscience sins. Now, we have to look at that teaching within the full context of Catholic doctrine. Because the Church teaches that he who would act against his conscience sins doesn't mean that the Catholic Church sort of falls into subjectivism and says there is no moral truth out there and that therefore anybody can do what their conscience leads them to do. No. By the simple fact that we say there is such a thing as a correct judgment of conscience or an incorrect judgment of conscience, just to say that is to maintain that there is a real objective order out there. There is an objective right or wrong and it's the responsibility of conscience to try to make the right kind of judgment about that. It's interesting that, not to get too technical here, but St. Thomas says that a correct conscience binds us per se. That is, a correct conscience binds us by its very nature. Why? Because it's conformed to reality itself. Whereas an incorrect conscience, even though it still binds us, it only binds us per accidens. It only binds us accidentally. It's in a sense sort of an accident that we don't know reality for what it is and the true course of action that we are taking. So it binds us, but it tells us in this distinction made by St. Thomas that it's not conforming us to reality as it is. Now, we have to ask some questions about an erroneous conscience. A conscience can be erroneous and certain. That is, I'm wrong about this course of action, I'm erroneous in my judgment, and I'm certain, okay, I don't doubt it at all, then we go ahead and act in accord with this erroneous conscience. But in order for us to be free from guilt in a case like this, we have to be invincibly ignorant of the fact that our conscience is in error. Invincibly ignorant. That means we can't overcome that ignorance on our own. I mean, somebody would have to enlighten us. So there's no culpability for a person who would materially perform an action that is wrong when he is invincibly 
ignorant, so he's not formally guilty of that sin, as we were talking about in an earlier show where we clarified the distinction between formal and material actions. However, if one has doubts about the judgment of his conscience, then one may be vincibly ignorant. That is, he has an ignorance that can be overcome. And it can be immoral to act with an uncertain conscience, with a vincibly ignorant conscience, because we have the responsibility then to do our utmost to determine what the truth of the situation really is. The, the only situation in which we act with an erroneous conscience that leaves us free of wrong, leaves us free of immorality, is when we are completely ignorant of what the truth might be. If there's doubt, then we have to get out there and resolve those doubts before we can act in accord with our conscience. And, of course, one of the greatest places where we can turn to eliminate our doubt and our uncertainty is the church, because we know that the church has been given the Spirit of God to lead us into all truth, and when it comes to moral questions, we know that we can rely with full certitude upon the moral teachings of the Catholic Church. So when we're trying to resolve a doubtful conscience, we're to study the matter, we can look to the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of good, decent, upright men and women around us, we can look to the scriptures to see what we should be doing to overcome this doubt that we have about our actions, and we can look to the church itself, which will help us overcome this ignorance. And indeed, we're bound to do that. I mean, if we would act morally, we're bound to try to resolve those doubts by looking in those various sources. We should really raise the question of certitude in the moral life. I mean, what kind of certitude do we have in the realm of morality? Well, the church has told us, St. Thomas has told us, the great moral philosophers of the world have told us, like Aristotle, that in moral questions, in most moral questions, we simply don't have the same kind of certitude that we have in mathematics, for example, in the hard sciences. Why? Well, we're ignorant. We're limited. We're finite. We may not have all the facts. We may reflect on a circumstance, think that we're making the right judgment. Our, our child has come to us with a problem. He's filled us in on the facts. We think we've made the right judgment with regard to what he's told us. And lo and behold, he's left out a very important detail of the situation he's found himself in that could render our judgment not accurate. Okay, so simply because of our finitude, because of our ignorance, because of the incredible complexity of some moral problems. Some can be extremely complex. We can't be absolutely certain, as we could be in the natural sciences, for example, or as certain as we can be that two and two equals four, about the course of action which we ought to take in this given circumstance. However, there is a certitude which is appropriate in the moral life, and it's probable certitude. Now, this doesn't, these terms don't always sound right. It means, well, it's probably right, so I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. Or we make a prudential judgment. Okay? We've got prudential certitude. Well, it's not as though prudential certitude is less than certitude. I mean, it's the certitude that is appropriate in moral matters 
and which allows us to act on the basis of it, of that certitude that we have, with confidence that what we're doing is not going to be displeasing to God and will be good for us and fulfilling of our persons. It's an appropriate kind of certitude to morality. So we needn't become overly scrupulous, okay, when we're acting in accord with our consciences. I've met some people who have almost been paralyzed because they think that they have to have all doubts removed and have that kind of mathematical certitude, which really is inappropriate in most of the areas of moral judgments that we make. There's no question about those that are very clear-cut, you know, never murder, never commit adultery, never lie, never steal. But there are some areas, as I say, in which it's never morally permitted ever directly to take the life of an innocent human being. But we might find ourselves as a physician engaged in some treatment that we see might lead to the death of that person. The lack of certitude that arises there is, I'm a physician, I never would directly take the life of an innocent human being. But this palliative treatment uh, that I am using to reduce this man's pain and suffering might hasten his death or this procedure might wind up killing him. There's doubt there. So you're not always certain. You know what the moral principle is. We may never directly take an innocent human life. But as I'm trying to apply it in this concrete situation, is what I'm doing directly taking this person's life or is it not? That's where the area of doubt comes up. There is a certitude which is appropriate to the moral life. It's the prudential certitude. We've reflected on everything. We've looked at the facts. We know what the moral principles are. And we go ahead and make a judgment and issue the command to act and place ourselves in God's care that we are doing the thing which is right for us in that moment. We read in 1 Corinthians 8.12 that we must always proceed by way of respect for our neighbors and particularly for the consciences of our neighbors. Because as Paul tells us, thus sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, the reason we don't want to act contrary to our conscience as Christians is because we don't want to do something which would offend God, which would offend Christ, which would offend our brothers, which would offend ourselves. The motivation for the Christian life is always that of love. What will bring us true happiness is this loving relationship with God in Christ, this loving relationship with our families in Christ, this loving relationship with our neighbors and with the larger community in Christ. Because you see, to wound and to violate the conscience is to wound and violate Christ, you know, who, as John Henry Cardinal Newman again said, speaks to us through our consciences. There are those who are not Christians uh, who also want to act in accord with their conscience and don't understand even that it is the voice of Christ. And this is why the church has always said that we must respect the consciences of others. When someone makes a judgment that they consider to be right and true and good, and we understand these people as being upright individuals, they are to be free to act in accord with their conscience. 
unless we would see that in the political order, the social order, it would constitute an act of injustice or harm against another person. Then obviously one can't appeal in a case like that to the call of one's conscience because one's conscience could never, if it's a conformity, if you will, to God's moral order, a conformity to one's conscience would never allow us to do harm to ourselves or harm to another. But it is for us as Christians a way in which we can come to serve Jesus Christ, that is, through acts of conscience. But it's conscience ordered to the true and the good. That's what makes conscience noble and worthy of honor because it's conformed to the true or we perceive it as being conformed to the true. There was a statue raised in London to St. Thomas More, the great attorney and chief law enforcement officer, if you will, under King Henry VIII, who refused to submit to the oath of supremacy and to acknowledge the king as the supreme head of the church in England. And you know this story that Thomas lost his position and he lost his wealth and he finally lost his life itself rather than forsake his faith. And in these latter years, a statue was raised to St. Thomas More and the Archbishop of Canterbury was there and the Roman Catholic prelate was there and there were public officials there and the statue was raised to honor St. Thomas More as a martyr to conscience, okay, that he was a man that followed his conscience. But, you know, there's a way in which St. Thomas More would have said, no, I'm not a martyr to conscience. I didn't do what I did because of conscience or for the sake of conscience. I did what I did for the sake of truth. I would not acknowledge the King of England as the supreme head of the church because he's not. Again, the beauty and dignity of conscience is a derivative one. It derives from the truth. So the St. Thomas More would not violate the truth, and his conscience wouldn't let him violate the truth. And that's where the true dignity of the conscience comes from. Now, the theologians get rather technical sometimes about types of conscience and the kinds of actions that the conscience makes, the kind of judgment that we actually perform, so that we can talk about an antecedent conscience. And this is an act of judgment prior to the performance of an act. Okay. So we, we make a judgment antecedent to the proposed action. And we've come to the judgment that it's either good or bad. There's also consequent conscience. And this is a judgment made after the act has been performed. And in this case, sometimes conscience doesn't let us know that what we've done is wrong until after we've done it. This is why every night we should be making an examination of conscience. I hope and pray that everyone listening, if they're not doing it now, will begin taking just three minutes in the evening before they go to bed to do an examination of conscience, to think back over the past day, 
we'll never reform ourselves and prove ourselves otherwise, but to think back and to see if they had done anything that was wrong, that they were insensitive to, that they weren't alert to, and we can convict ourselves after the fact. Okay? This is consequent conscience. And we want to do that because we want to avoid that kind of error in the future. There is what is called commanding conscience. And this is when conscience issues a command and tells us to do something. This act is to be done. Or a forbidding conscience when the conscience tells us that this particular act should not be done. Now, it must be said that there's greater clarity when it comes to a forbidding conscience because negative precepts are so much more focused than positive precepts. For example, our conscience tells us to give alms, to be charitable and generous with those in need. But how exactly do I do that? What circumstances have to be there to allow me to do it? Uh, when this man comes up to me and asks me for money and says he needs money, do I give it to him or do I not? Do I make the judgment there on the spot that from his appearance and perhaps from his breath, we feel rather confident that he's not going to use that money to buy food, but rather to buy drink, which is actually going to do him more harm. Okay. But a forbidding conscience can be very clear. Thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter the woman. I mean, that, that's something we don't have to reflect on at all. It doesn't require long consideration. It's simply forbidden, and we don't do it. Then there is a, what's called a permitting conscience. And this is where we might have two or three courses of action before us, and none of them are judged to be immoral, which means that we're permitted to pursue any one of them. And there may be reasons other than morality why we choose one course of action than another. We want to do something on a given evening. None of the proposed actions that have been put before us are immoral, and we might decide to do the one action because it's less expensive than the other, okay? or because we know Susie's going to this movie and you know, we're interested in Susie. So this is a permitting conscience. It allows us to perform an act which may or may not be done, and we're not obliged to do so or even to refrain from the action uh, in this case. And then there's what is called a counseling conscience. And this is where a number of courses of action may be open to us, might be perfectly legitimate. But conscience will counsel us with regard to one course of action over another. Okay? You know, if, if you look at all the, the circumstances, we have to say that this is really the preferable course of action to take, although you're free not to take it. Okay? But I would counsel uh, this course of action. So you can see through the kinds of, of designations that are given to conscience that it's an act of the intellect, if you will. Okay? We're making a judgment here about what ought to be done or what ought not to be done. But one of the things it does is to presume that there are indeed certain actions which may never be done. And the task of conscience then comes to be, is this action that I'm contemplating, does it fall under the heading of this particular action which is never to be done? Okay. 
it is not as though conscience would ever allow us to perform an action which would be intrinsically immoral. You see, with, with the, there's a degree of subjectivity here with individuals making judgments about an action to be done or not to be done, but this doesn't result in our falling into subjectivism, as I was saying before, because there is an objective criterion out there if we will only uh, take the trouble to come and to know and to understand what it is. So one thing we have to be very clear about, and that is that it is impossible to make an appeal to conscience which would have us acting in a way contrary to the very clear voice of Jesus Christ as it is heard in the magisterium of his church, as it is heard through the voices of his bishops, and particularly his vicar on earth, uh, the Bishop of Rome, who speaks to us the truth so that the truth can set us free. Again, God wants us to be free and fulfilled and to be happy. And this is why the church speaks the truth in love and why if we would be happy, we will do our utmost to conform our consciences to the will of God, to the truth of things as he has created them. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.